Well, welcome back, you guys. We are excited to have y'all back. It's uh, a bit weird as a church uh, that has such a heart for you guys as college students and our campus in town that uh, in many regards, as you guys are gone, a part of our church is missing. And so as you guys return, a lot of the life of our church, a lot of the vision of our church returns. And so it's great to have you guys back. We are thrilled. If you are visiting for the first time, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here. And uh, if you're visiting, we are ecstatic that you're here. If you have questions about our church, questions about how to get involved, we'd love to answer those for you. Uh, if you guys will turn this morning to Luke chapter 10, we're going to be uh, in a familiar story at the end of chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke. If you'll turn there this morning. As you guys turn there, let me kind of give you guys a few quick other announcements. Uh, you guys may have noticed as y'all sit down uh, on your chairs, there's a small group sign-up form. We'd love for you guys to know about all the options and things that are going on. Every Tuesday night, even here at our Southwood campus, we have small groups going on. This spring, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians, which to me is an exceedingly practical book, but also an exceedingly challenging book. And so it's going to be a great study. We'd love for y'all to be here with us on Tuesday nights. Uh, we're going to be starting something we've never had here at Southwood before. Uh, we've had it at our Anderson campus, but one of the things we're going to be adding this spring semester that we've not had before are some of our servant team groups. In particular, this spring semester, we're going to add a fellowship team and a service team that's going to be meeting also on Tuesday nights with our normal growth groups. And so those two groups, those two teams, fellowship and service team, are going to also be taking part in our First Corinthians study. But a part of what they also do is not just the Bible study, but a part of what they do is they help, in a sense, run our college ministry. And they, they help do a lot of the behind-the-scenes service and work that is needed for us to pull off a Sunday morning, but also a lot of the things that get involved in our ministry and the life of our church throughout the week. In particular, service team helps set up for Sunday mornings. They help run service projects that will bring uh, money for missions in later on in the spring. Our fellowship team helps do all the greeting and the welcoming as you guys come in here on a Sunday morning. Uh, they also help put on some social events through the course of the spring semester. And so if you're the one looking for a chance to get involved and in, in jumping into not just into a Bible study, but looking for a way to get involved in the life of our church and the life of our college ministry, I, I'd highly encourage you guys to think about those two opportunities. Our, our service team and our fellowship team. We've got some great leaders for those this spring, and we'd love for y'all to consider being a part of those. You can simply sign up on this sheet. Something else we're going to be doing this spring that we've not ever done here before at Southwood as a college ministry, and then from 9.30 to 10.30 every Sunday morning, uh, and starting in a couple weeks, we're going to have an elective, uh, which is kind of a little bit like a Sunday school feel, in, in which case we're, what we're going to do is we're going to go through a study uh, that's kind of, in a sense, the main storyline of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you've ever thought, man, the Bible is just massive. And I have no idea how to make sense of the whole thing. And part of what this study is going to do is give you guys a grid and give you guys a sense of the, the whole of, of the story of the Bible. It is probably, as a study I went through as a college student, and it rocked my world. It was one of my most favorite Bible studies that I've ever gone through. And we're going to kind of walk you guys through some of that material. But it's also a great chance if you're looking for just a spot that's not so big as our Sunday morning college class, just to get involved with some students and to get, uh, in a sense, involved in our college ministry. It'd be a great spot. We're going to start that in two weeks from 9.30 to 10.30. Then, of course, we'll have our 11 o'clock college class. I wanted to give you guys a heads up of some things we're doing this spring that we've never done before that we wanted you guys to know about. And so we're excited about those two options. I'd love for you guys to think through those and, and as uh, some opportunities to get involved. But we're going to be Luke chapter 10 this morning. If you look with me, verses 38 to 42. We're going to be in a familiar story this morning, but I think one that's so fitting for us as we begin a new semester. Luke chapter uh, 10, verses 38 to 42. If you'll follow along with me as I read Luke 10, 38 to 42. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. 
You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. We pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks that you are the Alpha and the Omega, and that you are the creator, that you are the sustainer, that you are the maker of all things. Father, we await a day in which you will return and you will establish your kingdom and we will look forward to your return. When evil, when suffering, when sin will be removed and you will do away with it once and for all. Father, we thank you for the death of your son who has forgiven us and cleansed us of our sins, Lord. And I pray this morning as we open your word that you would charge us, that you would challenge us, that you would draw us near. And Father, I pray this semester, and not only this semester, but even this morning, Lord, I pray that you would begin a fresh work in our lives. Uh, that you would allow us to see you more clearly. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would come and that you would begin to tinker in our lives and that you would begin to transform us from the inside out. Father, I pray that you would do some things in our life in ways beyond anything we have expected this semester, Lord. I pray that you would meet us in ways that we've never met you before. I pray that we could hear you in ways we've never heard you before. And Father, I pray that you would come and speak in areas of our life that we've never thought that you had any opinion of and any care for. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would remove all the distractions of our morning and of our semester that's awaiting us, Lord, and that you would give us just a, a period of time to hear from you clearly and powerfully. Pray that you would move me away and that you would do whatever it is that you want to do with us this morning and even whatever it is that you want to do with us this semester, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, I want to ask you guys this morning, what was the best Christmas gift you guys received? Uh, now, I know Christmas is not about the gifts, but I don't know if you guys got anything that just kind of rocked your world. Uh, for Marcy and I, we usually do uh, kind of our own Christmas gift exchange. And at the end of it, uh, I got some great gifts. But at the end of it, Marcy stood up and, along a wall in our living room and stretched out her arms and said, Trey, I want you to be able to get a brand new TV. Now, she stretched out her arms, and I don't think she thought I was going to take her literally, but I put her wingspan together, and I thought that was the size of the TV that I was going to get, all right? And I was pretty darn ecstatic, all right? And for the next few weeks, I kind of got just absolutely consumed with this TV purchase, all right? So I researched TVs, I looked into everything, and then once I finally found the TV I wanted, I ordered it, and I was following along perfectly with the shipping to make sure it got and arrived when I wanted it to, to arrive. And then once I figured that out and got there, and I checked it out, I got it out, I was so excited, and then I had to go buy a mount, I had to figure out how to get this thing up on a wall beautiful as it is, all right, although the most ladies would disagree, all right, but I got it up on a wall, and then I began to get consumed and so excited about seeing this thing, all right, it's beautiful. Um, in many regards, a kind of a principle got illustrated to me this Christmas break that I think is true of just about every one of the male species. When one of the male species gets a new electronic, we get absolutely consumed with it, all right? I don't care if it's a TV that's just monstrous and beautiful, or if it's a new Mac laptop or an iPad, whatever it is may be, we can get absolutely consumed, and you women and family can absolutely lose us in it. We just get consumed. Whether it's a Nook or a Kindle, we guys might even think reading's cool because it's electronic, all right? We can actually get consumed by these things, all right? And I think for many of us, whether it's electronics or what, a lot of us can have a tendency to tunnel vision at times, right? And sometimes it's not just the male species. Sometimes it's not just electronics. You and I all have a tendency at times to get tunnel vision. And what I want to ask us this morning as we come into a new semester, and it's this, is what is it, what is it that you're going to be consumed with this semester? What is it that you're going to have tunnel vision for this semester? And that question doesn't seem so hard this Sunday morning before the semester has even begun, right? But I think it's a question that's going to have all the more uh, relevancy to you come middle of the week, this upcoming week, when you've been shocked with syllabuses, syllabi actually, and uh, you've uh, found your blood pressure rising, you find your stress levels all of a sudden sending you back into a disarray, and your Christmas break that you're still tasting of right now seems incredibly distant, right? Don't get mad at me. It's a reality. It's coming. I'm trying to prepare you for it, okay? You know how this works, okay? It's coming. And the question is, when that comes and those syllabi come and whatever 
whatever you've come into this semester hoping for, I want to ask you this morning, what is it above all else that you're going to be focused and set on? Is it going to be the school grades that you're hoping to get? Is it going to be the approval of someone of the opposite sex that you're hoping to get? And maybe that person's even here this morning, which is why you're here. I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's a group of people whose approval you want in an organization that you're hoping to get into this semester. Maybe you're just hoping, Lord willing, that you could graduate. And that's what your tunnel vision focused on, right? Lord willing, maybe it'll come after a fifth or sixth year, right? Maybe you can finish it out. I don't know what it is this morning that you're set on as you think about your semester. Now, some of you guys may even be set on thinking, hey, all these things that you want to do for the Lord. Maybe you have an opportunity to serve in a church or you have an opportunity to serve in an organization. And you're thinking about it and your heart's set on all the things you think God has called you to and all the things that you think you're going to do for God this semester. I think all the things that I've mentioned are great. And yet, while the reason why I love the story we're going to look at this morning is that I think it drives us right back to the heart, really primarily of what God wants in our life. Really, the primary call that you and I have in our life that doesn't involve school, it doesn't even involve ministry and service to God, it doesn't even involve relationships. Now, the story we're going to look at this morning really kind of comes right at the heart of what God wants for us in our life. In fact, it's really interesting. This story comes right in the middle of, of a, a three-story set in which the uh, gospel writer Luke is really unfolding for us really what the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. Immediately preceding this story, we saw the story of the Good Samaritan, another really familiar story that, that was a, a story Jesus told in response to the question of who is my neighbor. And so Jesus told a story that really helped unearth really what is our call and obligation to those around us. I think this story comes on the heels of that because you and I might begin to think so much horizontally that we've missed really the primary call in our life, and that's to God and for God, that you and I are called to know him primarily. And what you're going to see is two women here in our story. They're going to look to have an intention and a desire to honor God, and yet they're going to take different, differing paths in which they're going to do that. We're going to see some contrast that gets set up. And I think the story here, I think, is one that is simplistic and yet one that is so relevant for so many of us. I think you're going to find, we're going to find ourselves really identified in the story so easily. Look with me back in Luke chapter 10. We're going to find two women in particular that are going to be identified. Two women in particular that are going to be contrasted. And the first that we're going to find really is going to be the negative example, all right? And we're going to see in the sense of uh, first primarily this morning, distracted Martha. Notice as the narrator describes this uh, character, Martha, notice how he describes her in verse 40. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, and she came up to Jesus and said, the first way the narrator really introduces us and characterizes us to this character, Martha, is a woman who is distracted. In many regards, I think Martha is a great example because as this semester begins, I'm going to argue that a lot of us can get really quickly distracted by all that's going to get thrown on us as the semester begins. The narrator will say that she's distracted in many ways that she's being pulled away from what's primary. Jesus will characterize her like this in verse 41. He says, Martha, Martha, you were worried and bothered about so many things. That she's worried, she's burdened, she's in a sense in disarray due to stress is what he's saying to her. You're stressed out. And because of it, you've lost perspective, you've lost orientation on what is primary and what is central for me. And I think Martha's a great example because I think what we're going to find in her example is, is that she's going to have a great intention, but she got pulled off course. And I think as many people kind of unfold the story, I think often people start to beat up on Martha. But what I want to do real quick is, is show you guys that her intention was gold, okay? Notice back in verse 39 or verse 38, Jesus enters a village and a woman named Martha welcomes him into her home. It was Martha who was there and first received and welcomed Jesus into the house. Martha's intentions were gold in the story, all right? Unfortunately, her intentions that were perfect are going to get kind of, in a sense, off track and she's going to get disoriented because the way that she's going to try to fulfill and show and express her intentions get her off track. 
Particularly, we're going to find that her sister Mary is going to end up being at Jesus' feet, just listening to him, while Martha's going to be off in the kitchen preparing an elaborate meal for Jesus. And what's really fascinating as we kind of walk through the story is that her intentions are gold, but soon we're going to find that she's going to quickly find herself in all kinds of frustration. She's got golden intentions, but she's going to end up having some really harmful frustrations. And notice what she says to Jesus. In the midst of her frustration, as she's off making a bunch of preparations, she gets frustrated and then comes to Jesus. And in her frustration, she's going to make accusations all over the place. Notice what she says to Jesus. Lord, do you not care? As she addresses Jesus, Lord, the the master, the sovereign over her life, her first accusation in her frustration to Jesus is that maybe he's insensitive. Maybe Jesus, the sovereign Lord, is insensitive. Maybe he doesn't care at all about what's going on and what has her frustrated. She's going to actually frame her question in such a way, though, that she's going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he's not actually insensitive. And notice what she says next. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Notice what she does. She first, in a sense, accuses him of insensitivity, but then she kind of gives him a benefit of the doubt by the way that she phrases the question and assumes that, no, no, he does care. But if he does care, then her, her, her second accusation to Jesus is that he's passive. It's not just that he's possibly insensitive, but he's also passive. If he does care, then why hasn't he done anything and addressed the situation? Why is Martha having to leave the kitchen frustrated and say something to Jesus to get Jesus to fix it? She's frustrated, thinking that maybe he's either insensitive or he's passive. In her frustration, she's not going to take just a shot at Jesus. She's also going to take a shot at her sister. Notice she says, why is, why is it that my sister has, in a sense, left me to do all the serving to myself? She's, in a sense, going to accuse Mary of being absolutely idle and inactive. Here she is in the kitchen doing all of the work while her sister is simply just sitting, listening, doing absolutely nothing in her perspective. She's making accusations all over the place. And what really turns this story on its head in many regards is notice what she does next after her frustration. She commands Jesus Christ to tell Mary to come help her. Notice, remember, when when she came to express her frustration to Jesus, she refers to him not as Jesus, but as Lord, as master, as sovereign. And by the time she's done addressing her master and sovereign, what has she done? She's told Jesus what to feel, and she's told Jesus what to do and when to do it. She's turned this relationship up on its head, and this whole thing has gotten turned around. Here's Martha telling her master exactly what to do, when to do it, and why to do it, and and where to do it. Things have gotten turned around. And and why has that happened? Why has things gotten so turned around on its head? I think ultimately what we're going to find as the story unfolds is that Martha has made secondary things primary. And because of that, she's gotten incredibly frustrated thinking that God was inactive, possibly passive, possibly insensitive, and everyone else around her was doing the wrong thing. If you've ever found yourself in a place with God that you've thought, maybe God doesn't care at all what's going on in your life. Maybe God is not at all taking the initiative, or maybe he isn't able to do anything in your life. And in fact, maybe you've gotten frustrated with everyone else in your life as well. And maybe the reality is that if you've ever landed in that spot, maybe you are pursuing things, and maybe you're set and focused on things that are secondary and not primary. And because of that, your orientation has gotten skewed and you've become disoriented, putting secondary things primary and missing what was most important. Mary is going to catch what was most important. Martha is going to have missed it. Notice what the narrator does. And as he contrasts distracted Martha with devoted Mary. Notice we find Mary in verse 39. She had a sister. Martha had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Jesus walks in. Mary and Martha welcome him. Martha rushes off to the kitchen while Mary just sits down and just sits at his feet and starts listening. Mary is going to make a, a decision, in a sense, that Martha doesn't make. 
in many regards, as, as they welcome him and as Jesus comes in, both Martha and Mary, their trains in a sense take different tracks on the road and they're going to land in very different places. And notice how Jesus is going to contrast the two. It's not just that Mary is devoted, but notice how Jesus speaks to Martha. Uh, back to verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are worried about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Notice Martha is concerned with a whole bunch of different things. While Jesus says, hey, you're concerned about a lot of things, but you've missed one thing that is necessary and that is essential. In fact, he's going to identify that for in verse 42. And he says, for Mary has chosen the good part. It's hard to catch in our English translations, but the word there for part, I don't know how some of your translations translate it, could better be translated portion, meal, or dish. Notice that the wordplay that's going on here is Martha off in the kitchen preparing an elaborate dish and an elaborate meal. But notice what Jesus says to Martha about the dish that Mary has chosen. Martha's thinking about a whole bunch of dishes while Mary's thinking about one dish and the dish that Mary has chosen is better than the elaborate dishes that Martha has chosen. What Mary has chosen is just to sit at the feet of Jesus and just to listen to him. And because of that, not only is she serving Jesus, but she's catching that which is most primary. But why is it so significant? Why is it that Martha is so concerned about a lot of things that she's missed the one thing that's even better? Why is it that so important? Jesus finishes off the story and he says that Mary's chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. What Mary is pursuing is the one thing that is the most essential and the one thing that cannot be taken away and that cannot be wasted. And what's really fascinating to me in the story is that Martha obviously had great intentions and she here she is, she's trying to meet a necessary need that people had. They're hungry in her house. She's trying to serve her intentions are gold. She's doing a good thing. And yet Jesus says she's not doing the best thing. She's doing a great thing, but she's not doing the best thing. And because of that, she's gotten completely disoriented and she's frustrated at Jesus and she's frustrated at her sister. All right, if you've ever tried to pursue good things and you found that you're frustrated at God and you're frustrated at everyone else around you, maybe you're pursuing the wrong thing, right? Martha is and Mary's chosen the better thing. You know, I, I think for many of us, the reality is, I think Jesus try, is trying to make a distinction here between distraction and devotion. I think Jesus is trying to make a distinction here between distraction and devotion. By its very nature, distraction is that which is temporary, short-lived, and fleeting. Devotion is that which is enduring and long-term. And what we're going to find is that Mary is going to choose that which is devotion and that which is enduring a long-term while, in a sense, Martha is going to choose something that's good, but something that is still temporary. In fact, very simply put, Mary is choosing a dish that cannot be taken away while Martha is choosing a dish that's going to take a lot of time to prepare and will be consumed in probably about five minutes, right? Like one of your fancy Christmas meals that your mom and dad spend all day in, in the kitchen serving and, and slaving over. And, and how quickly is it consumed? Probably about 15 minutes for a lot of us, which is frankly just depressing if you're with the cooker, right? Uh, I think it's kind of, in many regards the same kind of way here as Martha in the kitchen all day long. And what, yet what, he, what Jesus is saying to her is, hey, what you're pursuing is going to be consumed instantly, right? 10, 15 minutes. What Mary is pursuing is even a better dish and is a dish that cannot be taken away from her. I think as you kind of walk through the story, though, I think in many regards, he's making a distinction between distraction and devotion. And, and, and the dangerous spot is that when our devotion gets targeted to d- distraction, it leads to destruction. That when our devotion gets targeted to that which is by nature distraction, it leads to destruction. When you and I begin to worship that which is worth less, you and I end up wasting our lives. And so the question I want to ask us this morning is, what are you placing your devotion towards? What are you putting your tunnel vision upon? You and I are not the first ones that at times miss this, nor was Martha. In fact, one of my favorite passages comes in Revelation chapter 2, and you see that the church of Ephesus missed this as well. 
This is one of the most interesting rebukes that we find in, in the New Testament in my mind. And Jesus speaking to the church of Ephesus says this. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you've left your first love. It's fascinating to me. Here's a church that was doing all the right things. They were even hating the wrong things. They were doing them for the right reasons and they were doing them for a long time. On the outside, this church looked phenomenal, okay? In fact, this church is going to get, in some regards, the best compliments of any church that Jesus addresses in Revelations 2 and 3. And yet, what he's going to do and come back to them is he's going to rebuke them because they've been doing it and they've been putting what is secondary, primary. They've forgotten them. They've forgotten him who they're trying to worship, him who they're trying to serve. If you're here this morning and you want to know Jesus Christ and you want to serve Jesus Christ, the reality of what God has called you to, first and foremost, is not service, but worship. What you and I have been called to first and foremost in our life, what you and I have been called to have tunnel vision upon is a worship of a risen king, not service to him. What he's always wanted from us more than anything is not sacrifices, not offerings, not ministry. What he's always wanted from us first and foremost is that we would just know him and that we would be drawn near to him and that we would worship him for who he is and that we'd worship him for not what he does for us, that we'd worship him and not do a bunch of good things for him, but that we'd worship him for who he is first and foremost. In fact, Paul got this as well. Not just Mary, Paul got this greatly in Philippians 3. This is how Paul puts it. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, that I may know him. Paul's tunnel vision, his consuming passion, his consuming pursuit was to know Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the things I love about the, the phrasing in Philippians 3 is that we see even at the very outset, the way that you and I come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the way that you and I can know him, the way that he's pleased has nothing to do with what we do. That's why Paul will say uh, that you and I, are, we, are, we find him not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, that you and I don't come into a relationship with Jesus Christ on the basis of what we do. You and I cannot earn God's approval. We cannot enter into a relationship with him based on what we do. Our relationship with him is never based primarily upon that. It's always based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ on a cross who accomplished and forgave us of that which we could not remove and deal with the penalty of ourselves. Jesus did what we could not do and therefore he invites us into a relationship with him that we enter into not on the basis of how we live our life at all, but on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf that we can receive as a free gift through faith. Simply by belief in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that he gives to us that which we could not earn. That's how you and I enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. And it does not change even after we've entered into that relationship. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is not built nor influenced nor determined by what we do. Our relationship is always primarily built upon what he's done on our behalf and our worship and our pursuit of it. Which is why no matter what we do, that relationship cannot be severed. Even though we may make poor choices that can influence that relationship at times, it's always built and it's always foundational upon what he's done on our behalf that we've entered into freely. So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, let me encourage you again that the way that you enter into that is simply by belief. Casting away and putting aside all that you think you can merit and all that you can think you can do and you come to Jesus Christ with open hands and with empty hands coming and bringing nothing that you've brought yourself and so Paul will say earlier on in Philippians 3 that my ethnicity, my past accomplishments, all that humans would praise me for, I put away because they have bring and merit me nothing in coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. And for those of us who've entered into that, let me remind you again that our consuming passion is to know him, not to serve him. The ministry of the hands comes secondary to ministry of the ear. 
But what you and I are called primarily to is to know him and to, and to draw nearer to him. In fact, one of my favorite quotes comes from Os Guinness, and he says this, Our primary calling as followers of Christ is by him, to him, and for him. First and foremost, we are called to someone, God, not to something, motherhood or politics or being a student, or to somewhere such as the inner city or to China. I think for a lot of us, we get so consumed with what we're going to do for God or what we're going to do this semester that we sometimes can miss the primary call God has in our life, and that's simply to know him. Corinthians, Paul will say that he's afraid that some have forsaken Christ and that what we need is to have a simplicity of devotion restored in our life. And my hope for you guys this semester as we start this morning off and we start off a new semester is that you guys would get a quick reminder that what God has ultimately called you and I to is just to know him, to be drawn near to him and to take joy in his presence and who he is. I think particularly as a guy, and I would argue maybe secondarily as Americans, it's really hard for you and I to be people who sit and listen, all right? Uh, We value what we do over sitting and being. We value what we say over sitting and listening, right? And I think even particularly for guys, even in a relationship, dating relationship or what, it's far easier even in a romantic relationship to go do a bunch of good things, bring flowers, bring roses, than it is to actually draw near and be intimate with someone, all right? And I think for a lot of us, even as a pastor, it's easier at times to go do stuff for God than it is to come and do the work to know him and to sit and to listen, And so the challenge I have for you guys this semester as you begin anew, as you think about all the things that you have on your plate this semester, I want to challenge you with this. What is going to be your vision and your focus this semester? In particular, I want to ask and and come up and follow that with, where are you going to sit and where are you going to listen to Jesus? Or are you going to be hurried and burdened with the affairs that have been put on your plate so that you cannot sit and you cannot listen to him? The thing that he wants primarily for you and the primary call that he has in your life is that you would be one who would sit and that you would be listening, and that you'd be devoted to him. And everything else comes and flows from that, even as we come and we minister, and even as we come and we serve him, even as we move into into school, into roommates, into relationships. But that's our primary call and our primary focus. You know, I think for many regards, uh, I think a great spot to do that, just as a reminder, is a lot of our small groups. It's a great spot to sit and to be immersed in the word of God, to listen to him speak. This is where we hear him. This is where we know him. It's not just in the, in the study of his word, but it's also in prayer as we sit, as we listen, as we dialogue, as we interact with Jesus Christ. And, and it is often in the study of his word and it's often in a life of prayer that is sometimes for us the hardest things to do. Sitting and listening seems and feels so non-productive, right? Let me go do something. Let me move on. Let me, let me go talk about things. Let me move on. But to sit and listen takes discipline. It takes difficulty. And yet what I want to hear, what you guys hear this morning is that's the primary thing God wants from you. Not that you would run off and go do a bunch of stuff. Not that you guys would get a 4.0 this semester, which for some of you guys isn't realistic anyways. I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, But your primary call is that you would know Jesus Christ. I'm just kidding. Sorry. Okay. I got a 4.0 in my fall semester, my freshman year. And from that point on, it was just downhill. All right. A nice steady declining curve. Okay. Um, But anyways, that's neither here nor there. But that's my hope for you guys. All right. That you guys would find some spots where you would sit and that you'd listen to Jesus Christ. So let me pray for you guys this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks. Uh, Even for this story, as we look at Mary and we look at Martha, and Mary gets contrasted against Martha, and yet for many of us, Martha's activity, her response, seems so much more natural for many of us. It would have been necessary to feed and serve those that were in that house. It would have been necessary to serve and honor Jesus Christ, and yet Mary sits there and she listens. And yet, Lord, I pray that for many of us that we would find that spot in our own lives where we could sit and where we could listen. 
and that we'd find in that spot a fulfillment and a joy and an unfolding of our design and who you've called us to be and, and the way that you've wired us and created us. Lord, I pray that we'd find a fulfillment in that, that you remove all the things that are distracting, all the things that are secondary, the things that are even really, really good, and that we wouldn't miss that which is best, and we wouldn't miss that which is primary, Lord. Father, I pray for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.